We're going to be expanding off this idea that we looked looked at last week. We saw how Jesus healed the blind man. That He made him well and that there was a massive difference between sight and blindness. And if you remember the story, after Jesus healed the man, the religious leaders, because He was then healed and had faith in Jesus, then removed Him from the synagogue. That as this man had sight, it radically changed his life. And as we fast forward to John chapter 10, we're going to see what I believe is one foundational truth for the gospel message. One foundational truth for the gospel message that we all have to understand. Whether that you've been a believer for 50 years or you've been a believer for five minutes or you are have never experienced Jesus before. It's a foundational truth for all of us to understand. And as we understand that truth, it then requires a response. And we're going to see that there are two responses. That if you don't respond to Jesus, then that's a response. So we either believe or we reject Jesus. Today in our passage, we're going to see this foundational truth and how it plays out in every single one of our lives. And that it requires us to respond. So I want to get right into the passage. So let me pray for us and then we will get right into John chapter 10. God, we love you. We're thankful just for the opportunity to worship you. The Lamb of God. That's worthy of our praise. That's worthy of our thoughts and our actions and our desires. So God, we pray that the people will hear you this morning that will see this truth of who you really are in Scripture and will respond to it and will be changed by it. And then right now, we'll begin to live it out. That today is a new day for our spiritual journey. And that can only begin by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. One foundational truth that I think we see in this passage is found in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, and that is that Jesus is the good shepherd. That Jesus is the good shepherd. And I know it's not very unique of an outline because in John chapter 10, the heading says, I am the good shepherd. But I think it is a foundational truth that we often overlook. That as Jesus is building off this idea, He shows His true nature. That Jesus reveals that He is the Good Shepherd. It shows several Old Testament fulfillments of who Jesus is. All throughout the Old Testament it said that a shepherd's coming. One you may, we all should know is John, or John. Psalm 23. That there's a Good Shepherd that leads us to still waters. This is foundational for us to understand that the shepherd is a loving shepherd, that he takes us to still waters, and that there's so many things in our world that fight for our attention. So many things, but we can run to the good shepherd. We can look to Jesus. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus immediately sets up a contrast of what's happening here. He says that there are thieves and there are robbers that come into the pasture. And what their main agenda is, is not to comfort the sheep. It's not to take care of the sheep. It's to come in and to hurt the sheep. It's to take the sheep and make them theirs. It's not just to kind of take care of them. It's to capture them. 
And he says, so there are thieves and there are robbers, but then there is also the good shepherd. And the good shepherd knows his sheep, and he calls them by name. And they respond, why? Because they know his voice. They know their shepherd. They understand their shepherd. They hear their shepherd. Pastures in the first century were often guarded by a watchman. This watchman was, all, was often the under-shepherd of the main shepherd. And shepherds start so early in the morning, it's completely dark outside, and the shepherd wa- walks up to the watchman. The watchman lets him in. And what happens next is fascinating. All these sheep are like spread out across this field, and the shepherd has all of these calls for the sheep. And he calls out with these unique calls, and all the sheep hear the voice. And they run, and they flock, and they come together. But what often happens is that people trying to play a joke or wanting the sheep come in and they trick the watchman and they get in the, she- they get in the pasture and they make the same exact call as the real shepherd and the sheep completely ignore this person. They have nothing to do with this fake shepherd because that's not the real thing. So Jesus says, the sheep know my voice because I am the real shepherd. And what happens in verse 4 could not be more comforting. It says he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. As sheep in Christ's pasture, we can find comfort that Jesus knows us. That he doesn't just somehow know Bridge Church as a whole. He doesn't just know the Christian community as a whole. He knows you individually by name. And he calls out to us and we know his voice. There's beauty in knowing that we are a sheep in Christ's pasture. There's comfort there. There's joy there. There's hope there. Knowing that Jesus is the one who guides us, directs us, and comforts us. That he understands us on a personal level. That he's seen the disappointments in our past. He's seen the mistakes that we've made. That he knows the current heartache of our current situation. He knows the struggles we're in. He knows how we look into the future and have this big unknown in front of us that we just wish we could figure out. He knows that. And he calls us to a relationship with him, knowing that he's already gone before us, that he's been there, that he's seen it, And that he doesn't just think he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. And he knows what's going to happen. So when he calls you by name, he really does. He's not just the good shepherd. While he is, he certainly is. He's the personal shepherd. He's your personal shepherd. This is who we run to. And I know for a fact that every single one of us, we walk through these doors And as we walk through these doors into the sanctuary, we carry so much weight. We have these weights on our shoulders that nobody can see, but we each individually carry. And it's shame, and it's guilt, and it's disappointment, and it's failure of sin, and it's shame of sin. And there's so many things that we carry that we wish we could just give to somebody. And as we look at this passage, Jesus is the good shepherd that we can give it to. 
That it isn't just carry it and figure it out. It's give it to Jesus. Give it to the good shepherd and watch him take care of it. Sheep, when they were often hurting or um, falling out of line of the rest of the sheep, a shepherd would typically break the legs of the sheep and he would not just leave it there. He would pick it up and he would carry the sheep. And he would carry it and he would carry it until the sheep's legs are healed. And then that sheep would follow in line and it would understand that the shepherd was there to care for him. And as we go through our hurts, we understand that Jesus is right there with us. That he's not there to hurt us, he's there to comfort us and to heal us and to bring us back to a place of understanding who he really is and why he does what he does. That Jesus will carry you and he'll take every ounce of guilt, every ounce of shame and every ounce of sin that we have, and he'll take it. That's the point of the cross. That's why he did what he did for us. Jesus says that they'll know me by my voice, and he begins to share this example, and the Jews are like, well, I just don't understand what you're saying. So Jesus continues to illustrate this point of who he really is. And in verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the door of the pasture. Jesus is saying here to their individual lives, I'm the living door. That if you do want to have eternal life, you come through me. And you experience me. You experience faith and trust in the living Savior. And as the door, He is the protector and the provider of His sheep. And there's comfort in that. And he continues on in verses 10 through 18. And it begins to highlight even more so the nature of who Jesus is as the Good Shepherd. We know verse 10. It's a common verse. It says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. So Jesus is illustrating these thieves who they really are, their their point of coming. He says, I didn't come to do that. I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And he begins to forecast through this the nature of his death, that it's coming, and that he's giving his life over for a sheep, and that he's doing it on his own accord. He's not doing it because the Jews finally tricked Jesus and they caught him and there was no way out. He's doing it to lay down his life for the sheep because he cares for them. Because he sees the big picture of the Father, and we're going to see as we progress through this chapter, that he's doing it in the will of the Father. He's not going outside of God's plan. In these few verses here, starting in verse 12, Jesus begins to contrast from the thieves and the robbers to a hired hand and the shepherd. We look at the hired hand. And he says that these are the people that come in and they think that they're the biggest, the strongest, the biggest leader. They're everything that somebody should look at for a leader. But we see here, Jesus says, but they don't know their sheep. They don't know their sheep because they don't want to know their sheep. They're the hired hand. They don't have any interest in knowing or understanding or even protecting their sheep. And as we progress through these verses, look what happens. The wolf comes in. And as the hired hand sees the wolf enter the scene, what the shepherd 
should do is protect him. His job is to lay down his life for his sheep to protect them. And the hired hand is like, nope, I'm out. And he's the first one gone. The first one to run away in the midst of difficulty. To not protect one sheep. See, Jesus said he lost, or that he had 99 and one ran away. What did he do? He went after them. But the hired hand, he's not even looking after one And he runs away. He's the first one gone when danger arises. And he leaves them to fend for for themselves. You don't need me to tell you that sheep are not the strongest or the smartest animals around. They're not going to do well when no one is there to watch over them. The same thing is true for us. I know, I speak for myself here, I'm not the the smartest, I'm not the strongest And without the power of Jesus in my life, I can't do anything. I'm going to lead a life of sin and disappointment and shame without the power of Jesus leading my life. I wonder about you today. What type of hired hand are you following? What type of hired hand are you living your life for? Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's to be the businessman or the businesswoman that you always have envisioned. Maybe it's to be the strongest or the fastest. Maybe it's to, be, uh, to have the best appearance, to have the best house, to have the best car, to have the best clothes. What hired hand are you worshiping? Because we see in this passage that as soon as anything arises in our life that's bad, those things run away. That the only thing remains is Jesus. It's Jesus. Because when the waves of trials and disappointments come, it's not going to be your career that saves you. It's not going to be your money that saves you. It's the power of Jesus that saves us and restores us and carries us through the waves of, tr- of trials and disappointments. I think we often think of Jesus, if we're not careful, when we think of him as the shepherd, we think of Jesus as a 21st century idea of a shepherd. I was watching this documentary a while ago, and it's this uh, shepherd leading his sheep, but he's not just like leading them by hand, right? He's got like this massive truck, and he's like driving them around. There's like ATVs on every side. There's like these dogs nipping at the sheep, and like It gets them to where they go, but it's like this aggressive form of getting them to where they need to go. And while that's great, it happens like that, we think of Jesus in the same light. That he's got this whip and he's just like trying to smack us to get us to go in a direction that we need to go. But in reality, it's like the 21st century, or it's like the first century shepherds in this passage. It says that Jesus, they know them by his voice. And it's this caring voice. It's this comforting voice that when they hear it, they know that they're not in danger anymore. That there's peace that is about to happen. And that it's not by the whip, the driving force of the shepherd forcing them to go somewhere. It's the loving touch of a Savior. That the shepherd can simply put his hand on the sheep and the sheep understand that everything's going to be okay. We need to experience the loving touch of our Savior and see Jesus in that light. 
that He really does care for us, that He really does want the best for us, and that when we follow God's will, He is lovingly guiding us in that direction. And yes, sometimes we do disobey. Sometimes we do fall out of line. And Jesus will correct us. But in His loving touch, He steers us where we need to go. Why is Jesus the Good Shepherd? Because of the way He relates to us. Because how He calls us by name and He knows us. Why is Jesus the Good Shepherd? Because He is the door, as we saw in verse 9. Because when we go in, we find protection and we find salvation. And when we go out, we find pastures. And we still find protection. Why is Jesus the Good Shepherd? Because of His heart. Because He laid down His life for His sheep. And He offers us all a place to be with Him. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. He's the only shepherd. This is the foundational truth that we all understand. That Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And in verses 22 through 42, we see, in 22 through 42, we see that there is a response required. And that response is, do you believe? Do you believe? And then we're going to see here that you either believe or you reject. And Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees, with the Jews, as they're trying to comprehend who Jesus really is. Recently, I was reading a survey, and they surveyed a bunch of Americans, and it said that 6% of all Americans believe that the moon landing never really happened. That it was this elaborate plan by NASA and the American government to make it be like a power move to all the world. So the moon landing didn't happen. But then they surveyed again and they found out that 5%, on top of the 6, 5% of Americans are uncertain if it happened. They can't say it happened, but they can't say it didn't happen. That maybe there was just another plan there, but they can't verify that it did happen. That means if we do the math, one, roughly one out of every ten Americans will believe that the moon landing didn't happen. They can't say it happened. That's what you call a conspiracy theorist. And as we look at these final verses in this chapter, we see that the Jews are the conspiracy theorists. They've seen Jesus do all of these things all these beautiful things for the first nine chapters of this book. They've seen Jesus call himself the Messiah through action, through metaphor. And they're like, but we really still don't understand. Like, I know I've seen it with my own eyes, but I just, I just, I just can't believe it, Jesus. And they begin to question him and they say, how long are you going to wait until you tell us you're the Messiah? And they're trying to ask Jesus this, not because he can say, yes, you know what, I am the Messiah, and then they can worship him with everything they have, surrender their lives, say, yes, he is the Messiah. They do that in order so that they can then punish him for claiming to be the Son of God, and they can arrest him, and they can finally do what they've always wanted to do with Jesus. It's not so that they can get a right heart and worship Jesus, it's so that they can then punish him. 
we see the importance of responding here. That you either believe or you don't believe. And Jesus shows the stark difference of not believing and believing. Verses 25 through 30, Jesus gives his response by proclaiming that he's already told them over and over and over of who he really is. And while he didn't uh, specifically say, I am the Messiah, he gave it by metaphor, he gave it by action. And while they weren't there, he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, if you remember that he is the Messiah, he said it, but they don't have eyes to see. Remember, they're not a part of the sheep, so they don't hear his voice. When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you believe, verse 28 tells us that we get this incredible gift of eternal life. That we get eternal life with Jesus. And that it's a life that results in protection and security. And it tells us that you don't need to fear what happens next. Because our faith isn't put in our 401k. It's not put in how strong we are. It's not uh, put in how many good works we do, no matter how good they really are. That our life is secure in who Jesus says we are. And there's comfort there. This passage powerfully highlights what some theologians call eternal security. And what that basically means is that once you're saved, you're saved you're saved. That if Jesus makes you alive, you'll never die. And that if Jesus gives you sight, you'll never go blind. And that's an incredible comfort. And this verse may cause fear for those that don't believe. But for those that have believed, that are a part of the sheep, it should bring us comfort, hope, and joy. Knowing what Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not, not life, not death. But we begin to ask this question. Like Jesus is making all these promises here. Like If you're part of me, you get eternal life. If you're not a part of me, you spend eternity separated from the Father and the Son. How can Jesus make these promises? Like It's a bold statement to make from Jesus. We see it in verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus can make these claims because he is a part of the Trinity. Because he is one with the Father. They're distinct in person, but they're perfectly united in essence. That Jesus is fully divine. And after making this claim, the Jews then attempt to stone Jesus. And Jesus responds... And he picks up the conversation. I want to set the stage of what's really happening in this passage. They try to pick up the stones and kill Jesus. And in verses 32 through 39, this is what happens. Jesus stands there. And it's like there's this imaginary table. And he spreads out all of his good works on this table. And they're not good works like he came to church. And he tithed when he could. And he did all, like, all these things. Here's what he did. He's, he was healing the helpless, restoring sight to the blind, making the lame walk, curing the leper, turning water into wine, healing the son in John chapter 5, giving faith to the woman at the well, 
who is living a life in shame. The story goes on and on of what Jesus has done in these nine chapters, and he spreads it out, and he says, which one of these good works that has helped a community, that has restored a community, that has given faith to a community, do you want to charge me for? Which one? All of these beautiful works that have saved people's lives, you just pick one. And it shows that the Jews' man-made religion is weak compared to Jesus. That they are trying to oppose a man who's healing the blind and giving hope to the hopeless. That he's helping the downcast and the oppressed. And we often, so often, want to point fingers at the Pharisees here and say, how dare you? Like, you've seen the works of Jesus. You've seen how he works in our lives. You've seen all the works that he's done. How can you not just believe? But then we realize that we do this ourselves, that Jesus goes up to the same table for us, and he spreads out all his works, and he says, do you remember all the grace I've given you, all the mercy, all the protection, all the provision, everything I've done for you, the way I've guided you through these difficult situations? Remember that trial, that mountain that you didn't think you could climb out of? Remember how I got you out of that mountain? And he spreads it across the table, and he says, do you really trust me now? And we're just like, well, you know, what else you got? Maybe just do one more, one more good thing, and then I will fully trust you. What else do you have? Is this really enough to trust you, God? And the answer is yes. That the table is really this big, but it could be this big and it's enough to trust Jesus. Is it really enough to trust you, God? Yes, it is. And we look at Jesus and we see who he really is and we answer the question, do you believe? Jesus then begins to remind the Jews of their past. And he quotes from Psalm 82, 7, and which says, I said, you are gods, you are sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. What Jesus is basically reminding them of their forefathers that they worshipped. They all fell like every other person. They were trying to be the religious elite better than everybody else, and they died like every other human being. And he's saying that won't work. Have faith in Jesus instead of your man-made traditions. The story here with the Jews ends with them in unbelief and rejection. That they attempt to pick up stones and, and take Jesus out again, and he escapes, and he retreats to the land of where John the Baptist is, the region where John the Baptist is. And it says that he calls people to follow him, to be a sheep, and they have faith. They've heard the testimony of John. They've seen that it's true. They've seen the works of Jesus. They have faith and they believe in who he is. And the story ends in verse 42, and it says, and many believed in him there. That we're all required to respond. Some respond like the Jews in unbelief and rejection, but some have seen the works of Jesus and they respond in faith. If you have said yes to Jesus, I want to ask you, how are you living that out in a practical way? We went through the Gospel of Mark recently, and one of Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of Mark is repent and believe in the Gospel. 
And we talked about how that was a daily occurrence. So we're all required to respond to the gospel, to repent of our sins and have faith in Jesus every single day. How are we living out our faith in a practical way? Last week we asked you if you had eyes to see, that if you're spiritually seen, today I want to ask you if you have a right heart to both see and believe in the good shepherd. A right heart to see and believe who Jesus really is. To respond in faith. And maybe today, for the first time, you've realized that you have never said yes to Jesus. That you've never repented of your sins and said yes to the true and living God and know what He did on the cross, that He died for you. That He paid the penalty for your sin and that if you accept Him, that if you believe in the gift, confess your sins, you are saved. I pray that today is your day. It's the only assurance I can give you that something that if you do this, you will never regret it. You never will. The question is, do you believe? Let's pray.